We continue our study this morning on growing pains and how God wants to work in our families, in our marriages, in this church. And this morning we're gonna we're gonna focus on restoration, reconciliation. Let me use a word that might make sense to us: remodeling. You know that word? Restoring? Not anymore. Well, it's still a part of my life. We, uh, we, I shouldn't say we, I shouldn't put this on Becky. I decided that I didn't like the carpet on our stairs. The people before us in the house had a very large dog that didn't always make it outside. Does that paint the picture you need to know? Okay, good. So I decided to tear off the carpet and reveal what was underneath there. And man, oh man, oh man. 1981, I think the house was built. And so you can just imagine what I found underneath there. And I began the process of restoring the stairs, taking off one tread at a time and making a new one and fitting it and sanding it and staining it and putting it in place and then working on each riser. And I think I started three months ago and I, I have, I think, four stairs, four steps left to go. It's been a long journey. But I gotta tell you, when I'm not discouraged that it's taking me so long, there's something about walking to the bottom of the stairs and looking up and seeing the remodeling, seeing what has been restored, what was there before and what is there now. We, we, we're drawn to that, right? We're drawn to, to remodeling, restoring things. Some of you have restored old cars. Some of you have done remodeling in your home. Some of us have done some remodeling or, or restoration of this, right? Sometimes we pay other people. Sometimes we put our own energy into it. Every time we look in the mirror in the morning, we're reminded that we need to do some more restoration. We love to restore things. I ask you to consider this question with me. What about God? Does God like to restore? Is God, your, your understanding, your impression, what you know as much or little that you know about God, would you say that your understanding of him leads you to believe that God loves to restore things, that he loves to take what is broken and make it whole. He, he, he looks at those stairs and he sees all the wear. He sees all, I'm not going to get specific, but when you take carpet up, if it's been there a long time, there's stuff underneath there. Some of you are shaking your head. And you don't even bother to ask what it is. You don't want to know. It's just, it's been there. And so when he, when he pulls back the carpet of whatever it is that we're thinking of and he sees what is there, does he love to make that mess new. First, Second Corinthians chapter five. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, complete remodel. Old things have passed away; the old carpet is gone. And look, there's new things that have come. Everything, or literally all of this, this idea, this this principle, this process, <clears throat> is from God. Because it's God who reconciles us, people, to himself. And he does it through Christ. And then he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, Paul says, what I'm, what I'm talking about is that in Christ, because of Christ, through what Jesus has done, God is reconciling. He was reconciling the world to himself. That has been his plan from the beginning. And he's no longer counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed the message the good news of reconciliation 
to us, to those of us who have experienced that remodeling, that reconciliation. So I ask you again, do you believe that God loves to restore? Yes, specifically, what does he love to restore? Us, yes, good, we're on the same page. So we have to take that and say, okay, what does that mean? That means he loves to restore marriages that have been broken. He loves to restore families. Dale prayed for his kids, his adult kids this morning. My heart went right there as well with my, my five adult kids. I don't, I, God is so crazy. Would God ever give four daughters to one man? And then Brian walked in this morning. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> I, I meant that. I did, do that on pur- I did that on purpose. No. And then Brian walked in, and these four beautiful girls follow, following one in his arms and one, I think, of my kids. And wherever I'm at with them and wherever they're at with God, God wants to restore parents to children and children, young and old to parents and marriages and families and local churches. He wants to restore us, as you said. That's his heart. If you doubt it, write down 2 Corinthians chapter 5, those verses we read. We're going to come back to them again this morning because I believe they are the key window, the key glimpse that we get into God's heart when we ask this question, does God want to restore? Does he want to reconcile what is broken? Is there any shortage of projects for God to restore? No, there's not. Do we need to look out to the, to the community and the world to find those projects? Or do we need to start right? You with me? Here, okay. Right here. He loves to restore people. He is in the business, if you will, of restoring marriages, families, churches, people. I want you to join me in John 21. We're going to look at a, a guy that you're familiar with. His name is Peter. And I need you to reflect with me just for a minute because we're not going to go through the whole aspect of this moment that I want you to remember with me. Peter, well, I just, how many, how many of you feel like you have a pretty good picture in your mind of Peter? You've been around the Bible and you, okay, some of you, not you, Matt? Okay, you're still working, okay. He's still bitter that I made him raise his arms, whatever, was that last week? This left arm still doesn't work, that's why it's laid out there. Peter, Peter is Peter, right? Peter, um, he's, if you take the personality test, he's the lion. He's not the otter, the beaver, the golden retriever. He's the lion. He wants to be in charge. He wants to be followed. He wants to speak first. He wants to make sure everybody knows that he, is, he, he gets what's happening in the moment and that he's on the right side. And so Peter's the one that answers when Jesus says, you know, what are people saying, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but what do you say? And remember, Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the, you're the son of God. You're the son of the living God. And, he, and I think there was a little bit of, <laughs> that's the right answer, right, teacher? And we see that all through his journey with Jesus and towards the end of those three years, Jesus more and more is talking about going to the cross and the three days and this temple being destroyed and it being restored three days later. And, he, and he, he, they're not getting it. And he gets more and more and more direct. And finally, Peter says, you know what, Jesus? I think I get what you're saying. It doesn't matter the cost. I will always stand with you. You can count on me. Now, let's translate. I'm the best disciple. I'm the one that you can count on. I'm the one that even if it means I will die, have to die, I will stand with you. 
You remember that? It's found in both Matthew and Mark. Peter said, even if all fall away, what's he saying? Even if all the other disciples are not faithful, I will be. You can count on me. Mark 14, Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Now, most of us know what played out, don't we? Jesus is arrested. He is being put on trial. And Peter denies three times that he even knows who Jesus is. The word of God tells us that he goes out and he, he just he falls apart and he weeps bitterly. All of it comes crashing in. You with him? All of your public proclamations, all of, all, the whole last three years and this image that you have tried to build, portray to the other disciples and to Jesus, all has come crashing down. And off he goes while Jesus is being led to the cross his master, his savior, his creator, and to be his savior is headed off to his execution. And Peter is off in the shadows, weeping in misery in his shame and in his guilt. We come to John chapter 21, and we, maybe I need to remind us that we're, we're told what verse 1 means after this all the things that are described in chapter 20. Chapter 20 is his resurrection, Jesus' resurrection. He meets with his disciples at least twice. In fact, here, if you look at your Bible in verse 1 of John 21, it says, this is the, how many? The third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. He's also appeared to the, the two on the road to Emmaus. He's appeared to, to several of the women. He's appeared in a very significant way. He's met with Mary Magdalene. We're going to look at that in a, how many weeks is Easter. You should know that, four, four. Because you should be thinking about who you're going to invite. We're going to have an amazing morning celebrating his resurrection. And we're going to look at Mary Magdalene. Jesus had, had met with her. But this is the third time, the, the, the events of John 21, this is the third time he's met with them as a group. Twice already he's met with them in the upper room. One without Thomas, one with Thomas. So there's not a question that he's risen from the dead. He's alive, they've seen him. But they're, but, they're, but they're processing that. And let's, let's give them some grace. Can we do that? Can you put yourself in their shoes and say, well, if I was there, I would have believed right away. Well, let's give them a little bit of grace. That this, their whole world has just been rocked. Everything that they think they know about life and, and God and their relationship to him and everything that Jesus has shared and done over the last three years is now being reinterpreted back through what they now have before them. That somehow he's not dead anymore. And so in John 21, it says he reveals himself again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Now John's going to tell us this moment. So Peter is sitting around with a handful of the disciples, at least five other disciples, and I propose to you that they are, they're doing what we probably would be doing, or at least what I think I would be doing. What in the world is going on? I don't I, this doesn't make sense to me. John, you were there at the, at the, at the foot of, yeah, I'm telling you, he died. He died, okay, he died, okay. Yeah, that, that, he yelled out, it's finished. And into your hands I commit my spirit, and then that soldier stuck that spear in his side, and okay, okay. Well, I was with you, John, when I saw the empty tomb. I don't understand how the clothes are all folded or what, I, I and they're processing and they're thinking through. Now, Peter has an extra layer, doesn't he? 
We're told that he's been there, he's present at least these two group meetings, and he has seen Jesus. You know, it's interesting, Peter isn't his normal self in those two meetings, is he? He's not the spokesperson out front trying to kind of, you know, control the moment. He's a little bit more behind. He's not the lead, if you will. Why? Because I think he's processing what he's done. He's grappling with what has happened, the choice that he has made. And maybe it's true of all of them, but maybe in a more significant way for Peter because of his actions, reflecting, waiting. How many love to wait? There better not be a single hand because that means you'd be a liar. We don't like to wait. We don't like to wait for answers. We don't like to wait on God. Do we? When we come to God and say, this is what I want, this is what I need, this is, you know... And when do I want it? I want it now. And they're waiting, they're reflecting, they're processing. I think Peter is thinking specifically, what's next? What do I do now? I denied that I even knew him. I denied everything that I said I believed and stood for, and I abandoned him in his darkest moment. And now he's alive. Now what? It's likely that he was questioning everything that he had experienced with Jesus, everything that he had been told. And in that moment, we're told in John 21 that Peter says, you know, I'm Peter. I can't just sit here and think for too long. I need to do something. What do you want to do, Peter? I want to go fishing. Now, I know we look at that often as negative, and he's going back. And there's there's room, there's space for that. But again, let's give him a little bit of, of grace, a little bit of slack. Because he's going to the familiar. It's almost like we could say, Peter says, I don't know what else to do. I don't know what else to do. So, you know, I'm going to do what, what, what I've been known for my whole life. I'm a fisherman. That's what I know. I'm good at that. So I'm going to go fishing. And you see there in your text, you can read it. Several others said, yeah, that, okay, we'll go with you. And so they do. They go out and they go fishing and they get their gear and they go and we're told that they fish all night long. And they catch how much? Nothing. They couldn't even say, you know, I caught a fish and it was this big. We caught nada. Whatever nada is in Hebrew. We are Aramaic. You know, we caught nothing. Zero. All night long. Boy, I don't know if we'll get to do this, but I thought this week I would... And I know we say this from up front probably pretty regularly. When I get to heaven, I want to talk or I want to see or I want to. I really do want to sit down with Peter and say, just walk me through that night. Walk me through that night. As you were doing what you were good at and you were doing the rigging and the gear and you're throwing and you got, were you guys quiet? Was everybody just kind of doing their thing? Were people asking questions? Peter, what were your thoughts as the night draws on and you went back to what you knew you were good at, you knew this was the familiar, and yet it wasn't working. The one thing that you thought you knew and that you could do that this is who I am, I'm a fisherman, wasn't working. And as the night dragged on and the early morning came, there's Peter and the other disciples on the boat and they got nothing. Well, Jesus shows up, and that's not an insignificant statement, is it? You with me? You paying attention? You know, we read it in the Bible, we say it, but Jesus shows up. Jesus is there on the shore, specifically at the right time. I had somebody tell me it bugs, me, bugs them when I pick up my coffee to take a drink and then I don't actually take a drink and put it back down. 
I don't know. So I took the drink to make sure you're okay. He shows up at the right place at the right moment, and he, and, he, and he calls out to them. And I just think there's humor here. He calls out to the fishermen. They may not have thought it was funny. I do. Hey, have you caught anything? Now, did he know the answer? Of course he did. And then he proceeds to tell the fishermen how to fish. You know, the rubbing salt in an open wound? You know, they're going, and who is this guy? How dare he? I don't know. I don't recognize him. Is he a fisher? Is he the competition? Is he the fisherman from those guys down that? Who is this guy? Well, he says, throw it out on the other side. I don't know how. If I put myself in their shoes, I don't throw it on the other side. I'm just, I'm just saying. I'd say, let's call it a day. You know, let's go, let's go to Burger King and get some breakfast sandwiches because we got nothing. But they do it. You see there in your text? They do it. They throw it over on the other side. They take this advice from a stranger and they throw on the other side, and you read there that they caught so many fish that they couldn't even get it into their boat. And it's the Apostle John, who I just in my mind, I see him pulling the fish up, and they're all going, what in the world? And it's the Apostle John that looks over once again at the shore, and he says, Peter, that's got to be Jesus. Look, that's got to be Jesus. And Peter being Peter does what? Puts his, yeah, he had his outside jacket off and, you know, because he had his sleeves rolled up because they're dealing with fishing and he rolls his sleeves back down, he puts on his jacket and then he does what? He jumps out of the boat. How'd that go last time for Peter? Not so good. <laughs> but we're told it's only about 100 yards away and so he jumps into the water and he beelines. Another one of those statements or phrases, I don't know where that came from or what it means. Do you know what it means? I don't either, but do you use it? I do too, okay. He beelines, I don't know, he, okay, he swims to shore. Verse eight tells us they're not very far from land, about 100 yards, and the other disciples, they take their time, they're coming in the boat, they're dra- they can't get the fish in the boat, so they're dragging the big net behind them. But Peter runs ahead, swims ahead, gets to shore. It's one of these gaps that I can't fill. We're not told what Jesus and Peter talked about. Peter puts himself in this moment, doesn't he? I don't know why. Desperation? Turmoil? I need answers. I need to know what tomorrow looks like. I need to know where I stand with Jesus. But he swims to shore. He gets there. And him and Jesus have a brief moment together. And in verse 12, when the other disciples reach the shore, Jesus says, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who is it? Who is it, Jesus? Who are, who are you? Because they knew, didn't they? That's what it tells us. They knew that it was the Lord. They knew that it was Jesus. Remember, this is the third time they'd seen him physically as a group. And so Jesus came. He comes back to the fire that is there, and they sit down, and he takes bread, and he gives it to them. Don't miss that phrase. That is a a phrase that shows up many times in our Gospels, and it's intentional so that we understand the experience that the disciples had with Jesus. Their common experience was sitting around a meal together with Jesus, the bread of life, taking bread, breaking it, and handing it to them. It takes them back to those moments. It takes them back to that that Passover meal where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, communion, 
And he gives them bread, and he gives this bread to them, and he did the same with the fish. He hands them fish. Where did the fish come from? We don't have time to get into this, but just maybe go back to that later. That's pretty cool. He's not dependent on their catch, is he? Is he? No. No, he has fish. He has bread. He has fire. He makes them breakfast, and he hands them the fish, and this is the third time that he appeared to the disciples. John wants us to be sure to note that. This is the third time. I want to ask some questions. We're going to look at a few more verses, but I got three questions, and here's the first one, and I encourage you. I know not everybody's a note taker. Be a note taker this morning. Do it on your phone. Do it somewhere. Write down what God gives you this morning, and you might start with these three questions. I'll give you the first one. Why does Jesus restore? Why does Jesus meet them on the shore? What is, what is his intent? Why does he feel that this needs to take place? Excuse me. My leash came off. Let me give you some thoughts. I'm going to move quickly because of time. Why does Jesus restore? He restores because he knows that we take our eyes off of him in the middle of the storm. He knows that about us. Does he know that about Peter? Oh, does he? Does he? How did Peter get back to the boat that day? Can I suggest to you that he was carried by Jesus back to the boat? That Jesus reached down and pulled him up and grabbed a hold of him and they got back into the boat? Jesus knows that we're prone to take our eyes off of him in the storms. Peter's storm now is one of guilt and shame and regret and failure. And Jesus knows. When we start moving away from God with our actions, with our choices, what, what, what the first thing that we do? We stop praying. Then we stop reading our Bibles. Then we start, stop gathering with other followers of Christ and it goes right and he knows that he knows that we take our eyes off of him and all the things that are intended to put our eyes back on him sometimes there's storms of God's making like before with Peter in the boat and sometimes there's storms of our own making our own choices like in this case either way he knows and that's why he restores secondly why does he restore because we tend to find our identity in our failures don't we? We make choices, and it, 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 it blows up in our face, and we realize, this is wrong. This is destructive. This is hurtful to me and everybody around me, and often we just get stuck there. I'm the denier. I, I was Peter. I was the rock, but now I'm just the denier. I'm that guy I told everybody how you know, deep my faith was and how faithful I was going to be to God. None of that matters. I'm that guy. And he knows that we are prone to identify ourselves by our failures. Number three, he, he restores because we allow our fear to erode our faith. We allow our fear to erode our faith. You with me? Our fear, it might be fear that God can't forgive me. It might be fear that I've gone too far. It might be fear that I've, I'm too far beyond his reach. It might be fear that people will, know, will never again see me in the light that they did. It be a long list. But fear consumes and faith is just sat on the shelf, forgotten. God knows that. And so number four, why does Jesus restore? Because none of this is his heart or his plan. Are you with me? Some of you need to hear that. Some of us need to hear that. 
This whole idea of taking our eyes off of him in the storms. This idea of finding our identity in our failures rather than in Christ. This idea of being controlled and motivated by fear rather than faith. That is not God's heart nor his plan. And I know that because he showed up at the shore on that morning. Thank you, Matt. It was one of us. He showed up in that moment to restore this broken man. So when they'd eaten breakfast, oh, one more thought. This is important. I d- dismissed it. If you're writing these down, we should have it on the screen. Because God's covenant, his promises are eternal, and they are rooted in who he is. They're rooted in his nature. So when, God, when Jesus, as God, made promises to Peter, they are eternal promises, and they're rooted not in who Peter is, but they're rooted in who Jesus is. Is that important? You better believe that's important. The promises that he makes to us are not rooted in my failure or success. They're rooted in his nature. So in verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, pause, I don't know if they're around the fire. There's two scenarios here. One is they're around the fire still and all the other disciples are hearing this or it's possible that they got up. People were dealing with the cleanup and Jesus takes Peter off to the side and they talk. I don't know. We probably all have an opinion, right, about what that looks like. And I can't dogmatically tell you this is what it looks like. What we can know is that Jesus seeks out Simon. He asks him directly. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Then Peter, feed my lambs. Feed my lambs. A second time, Jesus asked him, he asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him, you know that I love you. I think he's looking around at this point. Who's listening? Who's here? He's, why are you asking me a second time? Then shepherd my sheep, he told Peter. A third time, he asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved. He's upset that Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Peter, feed my sheep. Now that's what we have in the English. If we go back and we look at the the Aramaic, we get another layer of understanding of what is happening here. Jesus speaks to Peter and he says, hey, do you love me? And he uses the word that we know, agape or agapao in this moment. Do you love me with God's unconditional, self-sacrificing love. And Peter says, you know that I, phileo, love you. That we, we, have, we have this companionship, we have this common cause, we have this, we're, we're friends. We've been going the same direction together for three years in ministry. You know that the reality is that. And then Jesus says, then I want you to feed my lambs, and it's for baby sheep, the little, un, the, 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 the least of these, the weak, the vulnerable, feed, Bosco, my lambs. A second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you agapao me? Do you love me with God's unconditional, sacrificial love, putting me first before yourself? Philippians chapter two, do you love me with that kind of love? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I Phileo love you, that I, this is, this is where I'm at. Do you see that the restoration, the remodeling has already begun? 
He's no longer, of course I love you. I'm the greatest of the disciples, and no matter what happens, I will never. No, he's not saying that anymore. You know that my love for you is this. Then he says, shepherd, different word, poimano. I want you to protect. I want you to take care of my sheep, brobatan, which is the full grown. It's the flock. And then he asked Peter a third time, Simon, son of John, do you phileo me? Do you love me as a friend? Do you love me as you identified your love to be? And when we read Peter then is grieved that he asked him the third time, I'm sure there's an element of why I denied three times and he's asking me three times, but I believe the grief is deeper than that. As he hears Jesus come down to his level of commitment, there's a reminder of what, is, what has happened. You with me? I told everybody I loved you like this. The reality is this. And now, Jesus, you're acknowledging you know the depth of my love or the lack of. The depth or lack of of my faith. He's grieved that Jesus says to him, do you phileo love me? And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I phileo love you. You know the level of my love. And Jesus says, then feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. How does Jesus restore? I suggested the question, why does he restore? Gave you some thoughts. Now let's ask the second question. How does he do it? And I'm going to move quickly. Number one, he comes to us. He comes to us in our pain, in our confusion, our doubt, our shame, our guilt. You, you, you with me? That's significant. Because we're more like Jonah than we're not, right? We're running away. God comes. Peter, whether it was wrong or right for him to go fishing isn't the point. He, he went back and he's fishing and he's contemplating what's happening. And Jesus meets him on that shore. He comes to him in his pain, his confusion, his doubt. Number two, how does Jesus restore? He asks the right question. He asks the right question and here's the right question. Do you love me? The right question is not, so what's your plan? How are you going to clean up this mess? What are you going to do differently in your life so this doesn't happen again? There's a whole series of questions that we, we throw on ourselves before we've answered the most important question, the question that God cares about. Yeah, but, but Jesus, you know. Yeah, yeah, I do. You're right. Yeah, but I only love, yeah, I know. Yeah. Oh, you know. You know my heart. You know my weakness. You know, you know everything I've done, don't you? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Do you see it? Do you see Jesus coming to him and saying, Peter, where you are and all that you've been through and what you're experiencing, here's the most important question. Do you love me? That young, that young man came to Jesus in his ministry and said, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember his response? What's the first word? Love. Love God, love people. And Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In fact, here, here's the truth that we need to grab a hold on. Love for God has always been the primary marker for the redeemed. Always. That's been the primary identification of those who have been reconciled to God, have been redeemed, have been remodeled, have been restored. The number one marker that identifies us as one of his is love. From, from page one. The Israelites were told, you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And then in Leviticus, he said, you love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus told that young man, here's what matters. Everything else is going to fall under that. How does Jesus restore us? He comes to us and he focuses, on, focuses our hearts and minds that are going crazy with all the, the mess that we've created. And I, lo- I look at the stairs, I look at the project, I look at the mess. And God says, I just need to ask you one thing. Do you love me? This is the starting point of restoration on our end of answering that question honestly. How does he restore? He confirms his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Romans chapter 1, he tells Peter, this is my plan. I want you to feed my sheep. I want you to feed my sheep. And the last thought that I want to make sure you hear, because this has been the thought that has captivated my heart this week. Jesus affirms that he chooses us to be his. He tells Peter there at the end, He says, follow me. What does that mean, follow me, to Peter? Peter, here's what Peter's hearing. I'm still a disciple. I'm still your disciple. I know you told me you want me to do this, but I I need to know that we're good, that you still want me, that I'm still in your plans. I'm still your guy to go and and to make disciples. And Jesus says, yes. After all that's happened, all you've done, all you've said and not said, I choose you. How does he restore us? He speaks to our heart and says, I choose you to be mine. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, just briefly, I want to take you there, and we're going to answer this third question. The question is what? What does Jesus restore? If you go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you'll you'll notice a resemblance to what's on the back wall. Because this is where we find our mission at Crossroads Church. Paul is speaking to the church in Thessalonica and he says, We always thank God for all of you, verse 2. I remember you constantly. We remember you constantly in our prayers. We remember, we recall in the presence of our God and Father, we remember three things. Your work of faith, your labor of love, and your endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8. So here's the result of that, Thessalonican church. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, the surrounding areas, but in every place that your faith in God has gone out. Therefore, we, Paul, this team, this missionary team that are taking the gospel to to new areas, he says, we don't need to say anything for the the people, they, the people that we're seeking to share the gospel with. They report what kind of reception, how you treated us when we came to Thessalonica, and they talk about how you turned to God from idols how you serve the living and true God, and how you wait for his son to return from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So what does God restore? What does Jesus want to restore in my life? Can I suggest to you what you, I know you already see there. He wants to restore restore our work of faith. He wants to restore us to people who are known by faith, that we are living by faith. Not by fear, but by faith. He wants to restore Peter to a man who lives by faith. Number two, he wants to restore our labor of love. Living our lives to communicate, to share the love of God. Receiving it and giving it. Don't miss it. It says labor of love, right? It's work to become known by love. And he wants to restore our endurance of hope. I summarize these three, and I encourage you to write this down. What does he want to restore in you and me? He wants to restore us back to our story of his glory. 
He wants to restore us back. He wants to restore Peter back to living a life that's going to bring glory to God. You see, turning from our idols to God, what is that? That's faith. What is serving God with our lives? That's love. And what is waiting for Jesus' return to rescue us from his coming wrath? That is, it's hope. He wants to restore us to people who are living by faith, we're known by love, and we are a voice of hope to this world. Can I give you two more questions? Okay, write these down. Seriously, write these down, please. We're done. Number one, what needs to be restored in your life? What relationship, what situation, fear, faith has become fear, love has become bitterness, resentment, anger, hope has become what? Anxiety, despair, hopelessness. Can you do that? Can you maybe this afternoon sit down or maybe tomorrow morning in your time with God, just ask yourself, God, show me what needs to be restored in my life. What has been lost? What do you want to remake new? And second question is this, what needs to be restored in us? Because you told me that what God loves to restore and and make new is people, us. So what does God want to restore in my marriage What does God want to restore in my family? What does God want to restore in this church? What does God want to restore in the big C, his church, his bride? You with me? Write that down. Spend some time. And then come back to these first three questions and walk through it again and say, okay, I know why you want to restore. I know how you do it. And now I know what you want to restore. And God, you and I are on the same page. We're on the same page. Do your remodeling in me. I want to take you back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Would you join me there? And if you are prepared to come to the Lord's table this morning, I ask you to join me there as well. Jesus was, was with his disciples that night when he Ask them to do this in remembrance of him. This is an invitation to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We're invited to his table. We're not, it's not that some are worthy and some are not. It's that some are forgiven. Didn't we study that last week? Forgiveness. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice on the cross. I want to read the words of Paul again. And as I read these words, I invite you to take the bread and eat the bread and take the cup and drink the cup as God leads you. But contemplate these words as you prepare your heart to do this in remembrance of him. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and look, new things have come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. This is what we're remembering right now in this moment. And then he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. He's no longer counting their trespasses against them. The wages of sin have been paid for, been covered on the cross. And he has committed this message, this good news of reconciliation to you and me who have been reconciled. Verse 21. 
God made the one, Jesus, who did not know sin to take our place. That's what this is. It's what it represents. It's what we're remembering. He took my place. He who did not know sin, he took sin for us to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, you're right. God really does love to restore. He loves to remodel what has been broken. And some of you here this morning are stuck. You've pulled the carpet back and all the junk, and you're just looking at that, and you're overwhelmed. You're not even sure there's any hope for it to be remade. There is hope because of Jesus Christ. And as you take this bread and you eat it this morning and you drink of this cup, remember that you proclaim his death till he comes, which means that you believe he resurrected from the dead and that he's coming back. Father, forgive us for our lack of faith. Thank you for being gracious to us as you were to Peter. When we look inward, we look to our hearts, we look to our minds, we see, we see the brokenness. Will you help us to see us, help us to see ourselves as you see us, even as we prayed this morning, that forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation is ours through Jesus Christ and through him alone. As we sing this morning, Holy Spirit, be present in our, in our hearts and our minds so that when the words come out of our mouths, they will be authentic expressions of our gratitude, of our praise of you. Help us to, to see more clearly this morning as we sing just who you are, Jesus, and who we are to you. You are a God of reconciliation, and whether it's our, our, our own walk, it's our marriage, it's our family, it's relationships in this church, it's relationships at work or in the, with our neighbors in the community, that you are the God of restoration. And you love to restore. Thank you for that love, Father. Thank you for that love, Jesus. Thank you for your love, Holy Spirit, that lives in us.